So after a good lunch and a very interesting debate that we had on a very wide issue of uh, global geopolitics, uh, we are now zeroing down on a subject that is significantly more narrow, but in my view, as important in the long term as, uh, as many of the geopolitical questions. Um, that's the question of decarbonization. Um, I think most of us uh, understand that uh, decarbonization is essential, that if we do not manage to uh, mitigate greenhouse gas emissions to a degree that, uh, that drives us back into the, uh, uh, into the early 19th century in terms of uh, greenhouse gas emissions, we have faced the risk of substantial climate change and uh, potential trigger effects that might bring us to, uh, uh, to catastrophic events that we currently cannot fully appreciate. Now, having said that, those, um, um, those solutions that we have in mind are currently not yet fully deployable, and what we all know is that they will require massive political interventions. So if we want to go to the targets of the Paris Agreement, which essentially foresees that we are carbon neutral by the middle of the century, that would mean that there is essentially no more CO2 emissions from cars, from heating, from, uh, um, from other forms of transport, from electricity, in Europe, and that will shape the way in which our sectors operate and our economy works. Now, that will require massive policy interventions because those sectors will not easily give up the way in, in which they are operating. And um, this will not only have impact on those sectors, but also on households. And in this session here, I do not want to focus us too much on, uh, on industry, but the focus of this session is really what might such an aggressive decarbonization that we, uh, that we think necessary until the middle of the century mean for distributional consequences between different groups of households in terms of inequality, and here I mean in the European sense. So just think about uh, the, the different effects that decarbonization might have. Uh, in terms of the asset sides of households, households typically own most of the assets in form of housing. This housing needs to be substantially renovated. Uh, households' second asset class is cars, which also have to be completely replaced. Um, and financial assets, a lot of those financial assets being in, in brown companies, if you might want to call them that. And, uh, and also there, there might be substantial revaluation of those. On the income side of households, households acquired specific skills, many of them in brown sectors, um, especially poorer households, uh, or a lot of the, of the brown sectors are represented by relatively um, lower skilled labor. And you also have different uh, uh, or changes in your returns to, uh, to the assets that the, uh, that the households own. And on the expenditure side, you also will have significant shifts through to decarbonization policies. Um, we will essentially put prices on the usage of, uh, uh, of fossil fuels that are substantial, that will benefit those that can afford uh, cheaper vehicle, uh, uh, vehicles that have less emissions. Um, the heating and the electricity bills will initially potentially go up uh, significantly. Also, the way in which the electricity bill, for example, looks like will change dramatically because when the wind is blowing, electricity might be free, but when the wind is not blowing, electricity might be quite expensive. So there is massive shifts due to decarbonization for households, both on the asset side, on the income side, and on the expenditure side. And our thinking was that, uh, that some of that has been now acknowledged in, uh, in some of the decarbonization policy documents, but a lot of that is not really discussed, and uh, we wanted to take the opportunity to, uh, to bring this discussion here uh, to, uh, to Brussels. Now, you might argue, okay, then if decarbonization uh, um, is essentially uh, to, a, to a large degree falling on, on poorer households because they cannot buy an, uh, a low-emission vehicle, uh, the, uh, the investments of richer households are subsidized, um, if um, electricity prices go up and, and poorer households consume more electricity as a share of their, of their income, then 
decarbonization might be a highly regressive uh, um, policy proposal, and therefore we should not do decarbonization for, for equity reason. Now, that thinking is completely wrong because climate change itself is highly regressive. Um, so uh, if you think about uh, poorer households cannot as easily adapt as, uh, as richer households to a, to a changing climate. So what we are suggesting, and uh, Bruegel is coming up with a report in, um, in the coming months uh, on, uh, on that, is that there are indeed remedies to, uh, to make decarbonization policies uh, less regressive. Um, the, the first thing that we think is important is that this issue needs to be taken more into account. And then that there are compensation mechanisms and Yes, in theory, we can think about compensation mechanisms, but they are uh, uh, only rarely employed, so more of that needs to be done. Uh, we should think about, if we implement uh, climate policies, about whether there's maybe an option that is less regressive than another option to do that. And also when focusing on sectors, we might think about which sectors have more regressive effects than others. Now, with this introductory uh, statement from, uh, from my side, uh, it's my pleasure to, uh, uh, to hand it over to, uh, to the panel. I think we have a very good mix here. And I would like first to give the floor to, uh, to Barbara Botosch. Uh, she is Deputy State Secretary for Climate Policy at the Ministry of Innovation and Technology in, in Hungary. And uh, I hope um, can enlighten us on, on what Hungary has might. Okay, thank you for the invitation. I think I would like to summarize my introductory part in six points. The first point is pretty general. The second one will be pretty global. And then the rest of them will be quite universal. So let's start with the general statement. The general statement is that the social implications of climate change don't come from the impacts of climate change, but actually from the policies that we adopt to mitigate climate change. And that's what you said, that ma many measures are quite regressive in their nature. They are not progressive and they put heavy burden on certain uh, parts of the society, especially, especially those who are poverty stricken. My second statement, my second statement is unless there is a global carbon price, unless there is politically and globally synchronized decarbonization, uh, we cannot get rid of the competitiveness concerns of traditional companies. That's uh, very important. Hungary is in, a, is in a very good situation when we talk about climate policy, being the first member state of the EU who ratified the Paris Agreement. Uh, and also, we are very progressive with greenhouse gas emissions, more than 34% already done compared to 1990 levels. We will be one of the biggest sellers in the effort sh uh, sh uh, sharing uh, scheme. We are going to have at least 50% of the sellable quotas, the annual emission allocations within Europe between 20 and 2020 and 2030. However, when it comes to the ETS sector, when we talk about the emission trading scheme, just within the last 10 months, the price of the ETS quota has risen fourfold from five euros to 21 euros already. Just imagine what a big burden it is on all the installations that are under uh, the European emission trading system. And I always keep uh, emphasizing that it's especially a big burden for Hungary, which is at the edge of the European Union. And when we talk about carbon leakage, carbon leakage is not something leaking from something, but carbon leakage is actually the relocation of uh, companies to countries which are not under the burden of any uh, strict environmental or climate policy regulation, and it's already happening, especially in Hungary. The first sign of carbon leakage or greenhouse gas leakage is that the market share of these companies decreases because import is way cheaper. The second sign of it is uh, 
investment leakage, we can experience it in Europe. So many companies make a decision not to start a new in inst installation in Europe, but go to other countries which don't have as strict regulations. And the third part is carbon, carbon leakage, which is actually the relocation of existing companies which produces uh, even more and higher global emissions. So that's why I said in my second point that unless we have global carbon price, unless we have uh, globally synchronized decarbonization, we cannot solve the competitiveness problem. And now let's go deeper down to those people who suffer the most, because that's the topic of today's discussion. And that's how we can make this discussion even more universal. Just a few uh, details about Hungary. Hungary, as you know, is a traditionally energy-dependent country. 80% of gas, 90% of oil, 30% of electricity. So we are import-dependent. Don't believe any Hungarians who say that we can make this undone. We cannot be independent of import. This is, this is something we, we have to live with. However, we can deal with it. We can diverse the energy mix. We can diverse the portfolio. And if, if there is a diverse portfolio, there is market, a booming market. And if there is a booming market, then the prices might go down. And that's what really helps households if uh, prices go down. So I come from the Ministry of Innovation and Technology. It used to be the Ministry for National Development. So this has a new name, but this new name means a lot. And it also means that we think that climate change and energy transition has a great business development potential. And we decided to enter the champion path. We don't want to lag behind. We think that climate uh, change can offer good business solutions and innovative solutions. Hungarians have been very famous of being creative. So we would like to, uh, we would like to be uh, in the group of forerunners. So we decided to have four main programs, four main pillars of a huge strategy, which is all about smart, clean, and payable energy smart, clean, and payable. And the four pillars that we have just identified are the following. The first is putting uh, the consumers into the focus, or rather, uh, presumers, because they are producers and consumers at the same time. The second pillar is uh, uh, the security of energy supply is very important for a country like us. The third one is how we can make uh, the transformation of energy sector in a climate-friendly manner. And the third one is the economic uh, business potential that is embedded in any uh, energy transition or climate uh, policy making. And that was uh, number four. And number five is that uh, Hungary is committed to decarbonize. And what we have realized that emission reduction should not uh, come hand in hand with economic downturn. Over the, over the last 15 years, we experienced that uh, greenhouse gas emissions can be decoupled from uh, uh, actually a GDP uh, growth, which is a uh, good news. And here comes number six. And this is something I think many people talk about. That's, that's the future of the world. And this is massive electrification. That's what is uh, before us. And that's why it's very important to talk about it, especially in Hungary, where we produce, we use a lot of gas, for, especially for heating. And this massive electrification is going to touch basically the heating sector and the transport sector. When we talk about transport sector, it's um, more or less e-mobility. When we talk about the heating uh, sector, it's more about electrification of heating, which in Hungary is 97% run by gas. Uh, 
So when we talk about uh, the electrification tendency, that the gross energy consumption of the world within this gross energy consumption, the electricity share is going to grow massively. Uh, it means that there is going to be a growing demand for electricity from all segments of society. The question is if, uh, if the system, the infrastructure is prepared for that. And when on behalf of Hungary I talk about uh, decreasing um, uh, the dependency, the important dependency, then I have to talk about decentralization. The three Ds, decentralization, decarbonization, and digitalization. So we do think that the future is uh, about decentralized energy production and consumption, but also we should not forget about the uh, new grid infrastructure that is needed to accommodate that growing demand. And here comes the consumers, and this is the end of my last point. The consumers uh, are going to have very diverse demands based on their income level, based on their ages, based on their living circumstances. The diverse demands of consumers have to be met in this new era of electrification. And they, they also want freedom of choice freedom of choice of what source of energy and from which company they would like to get. And uh, when there is a new consumer performance demand emerging, and that's what is happening right now, we need an energy policy. And I think each country needs differentiated energy policy for each consumer segment. And now let me uh, just to finish my introduction, by asking some questions. My questions are the following. So can we decouple energy policy from social policy? When we talk about energy prices and those poverty-stricken people who suffer the most from the regressive policies that we make, uh, we talk about the price of energy and we also talk about consumed energy. Shall we regulate the prices to alleviate the situation of the poor, of the energy poverty-stricken people, or shall we just have a modal shift to do it in a smart way? Can we do that in a smart way? Can we have social energy policy in a smart way? Can we introduce a new energy source which is ac actually consuming less? So these are the two uh, factors there will be a shift. And maybe later I can talk about why I think that there is going to be a shift uh, between these factors of uh, price regulation in general. Thank you. Yeah, many thanks, Barbara. I think you, you essentially did the job of Emmanuel and myself by uh, speaking about uh, prosumers and uh, um, putting up the questions that, uh, that are also um, very logical uh, continuations of your um, of your presentation. Uh, I think it's very good to to hear some uh, pro uh, progressive policy stance from the uh, from the side of uh, of Hungary uh, on uh, on the question of decarbonization. And with that, I'd like to to give the floor to uh, to Emmanuel uh, Lagarik. He is the executive vice president and chief strategy officer of Schneider Electric, um, one of the uh, one of the leading companies that uh, produces the. Uh, hardware for the new energy world. Thank you, and um, yeah, I'm very positively surprised by, by the, the opening comments of Barbara. Um, and just to reinforce many of the, the points she, she has made, um, for Europe, um, uh, climate change and the energy transition are a matter of uh, geopolitics, uh, economics, and social uh, policies. Um, Geopolitics, uh, simply for the fact that 54% of the energy we consume in Europe is imported from Russia, the Middle East, North Africa. Uh, the Chinese are ready to invest in, in sending uh, us uh, more electricity. Uh, whereas we have a lot of wind, we have a lot of sun in Europe, um, and the technologies to, to transform this wind and, in sun, and that sun on, uh, into electricity are have, uh, seen their costs decreasing 
a lot. Uh, I mean, we're talking about 75% decrease in the cost of, of uh, solar PV uh, over the last uh, uh, eight years. So um, we have this strange paradigm where we still are focusing on very centralized um, uh, energy systems uh, controlled by a few companies, electrical utilities, oil and gas companies, uh, which are replicating the, 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 the systems and the, 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 the strategies of the past. I mean, um, big uh, uh, pipelines or, 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 or connecting lines with, uh, with, with Africa within a hyper-centralized uh, energy system. Uh, mostly based on, on imports, whereas we could go for more decentralization, more autonomy uh, uh, as, as Europeans when it comes to, uh, to, to, to energy. So from a geopolitical standpoint, there is a very strong interest in, in, in terms of, uh, of, um, of going faster in the energy transition. Um, second point, it's a matter of cost. Right? So, so climate change has already cost 400 billion uh, euros to to Europe uh, over the last uh, 15 years. Uh, and it's just the beginning. Uh, uh, and of course, talking about the social impact of this, uh, guess who is going to be most impacted by, by in that cost? Of course, the people uh, who are uh, most in, in, in need. Um, and by the way, this very centralized system which is built on importing energy is costing us 1 billion euro per day. So we're importing 1 billion per, uh, euro per day of energy. So. Uh, we are reaching a point where the centralized system, which, is, which was the system we, we had and we, we could not do anything better, technically speaking, up to now, is reaching a point where it makes no sense, uh, where we have to shift to something which is much more decentralized and, 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 of course, much more decarbonized. Because on top of this, from a social standpoint, this current system has produced something between 50 and 120 million Europeans being either in or at the edge of energy poverty. So, so uh, really the, the current system is, is, is taking us to a place uh, which is not solving any, any problem. Um, there's a lot of resistance from, from the traditional companies who see their business model being shifted, being, being uh, uh, challenged, but some of them, uh, some utilities like Enel or uh, Iberdrola or others or in, in Germany also, are, have understood that. They are, pretty progressive uh, in, in understanding that the energy transition can be good also for their business, understanding that they, will, they need to change their, bus their business model, and of course, uh, first and foremost, for, 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 for their customers. And uh, would their customers be businesses or, 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 um, or individual consumers? So which takes me to the point of prosumer that, that Barbara uh, um, uh, put on the table. So as she said, the, inc the increase of the demand of electricity will, will double, uh, basically. Over the next 15 years, we will consume twice as much electricity as we consume today, because we are going to electrify transportation. Uh, we are going to electrify a series of uh, um, uh, industrial processes, mostly related to, to heat. Um, we are consuming more and more IT services uh, every day, and this is extremely electricity intensive, and so on and so forth. So, the consumption of electricity will double, um, no matter what. Now, um, either we continue with that system of importing energy from, from outside, very carbonated, very centralized system, where at, at the end uh, it's managed by, by a few large corporates, or we go for a really decentralized system where uh, businesses and people uh, take care of their uh, energy equation and make sure that uh, their energy is decarbonated, that they can be autonomous uh, uh, in the way they, they produce energy. And yes, it will, it will um, uh, take us to, to, to deploy new policies and new, and, new, uh, and, new, um, and new ways to do energy. And actually, in that transition towards a world of prosumer, where we are both producers and consumers of energy, Europe is, is late. Uh, late versus other developed uh, regions of the world, like Australia. 25% uh, of households have solar panels on their roof in, in Australia. So um, it's pretty across the board. It's not only the, the top end of, uh, of, of the Australian society. Uh, 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 it's, it's, it's pretty democratic. Um, the US uh, is going faster than Europe. 
regardless of the, the flows of, twist, of tweets coming from the White House, this is not where policy is made on, on, on energy. Uh, the energy transition is happening uh, because many businesses, many people want resiliency uh, uh, and want to, to take control of uh, their own uh, uh, carbon footprint and, and energy production. So because of this super centralized system based on, on imports, uh, we are kind of blocked and, and we are a bit uh, um, uh, uh, behind uh, other developed uh, regions in the world. Uh, we are missing a big opportunity. Uh, I think it's, it's uh, Commissioner Arias Cagnete who said that uh, if between businesses and, 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 and public subsidies, we were able to invest something like, like 180 billion euros over the next five years in this energy transition, uh, we would create uh, close to one million jobs in Europe, right? Because when you democratize the production of energy, when you make it local and you don't depend so much on, on, on imports, well, you don't create jobs in Russia, in the Middle East, or in North Africa, you create jobs here uh, to install solar panels, to, <coughs> to size uh, uh, um, a wind farm or a solar farm, uh, to create uh, uh, local uh, energy production. So, one million jobs um, and probably uh, roughly uh, an additional percent of, of GDP. Um, so this is what the energy transition could bring to, uh, to us as, as European. Of course, in that transition, we have to make sure that all the, 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 the levels of, of uh, the socioeconomic levels uh, uh, in, in our societies can benefit from it. Uh, and this, this is also a big opportunity, if we do that well, to take uh, there's 50 to 120 million Europeans who are uh, in energy poverty today to take them out of the energy poverty and solve that problem also for them. Thank you, Manuel, and it was good to hear that uh, there is also a lot of opportunity in the decarbonization debate for, uh, for European growth um, in, the, uh, in the future. Um, now, um, the, uh, the floor is to, uh, to Dennis Benjamin, uh, who uh, works at the uh, ETUEC, which is an association of trade unions uh, in the EU. And uh, trade unions have often been uh, criticized for, for being structurally conservative on, uh, on some of those issues. It would be interesting to, uh, to get your view. Thank you. Um, indeed, I'm, I'm representing the ETUC, which is the uh, European Trade Union Confederation. For those of you who are not familiar with the uh, um, ETUC, we represent 90 national trade union confederations coming from uh, 40 European countries, and we also represent 10 EU-wide uh, sectorial um, federations. Um, first of all, I would like to apologize uh, Montserrat Mir, uh, who is sick today and who is unable to be, to be with you. Um, I learned um, a couple of hours ago that I had to step in. That's why I might look a little bit underdressed. I feel better now that I can see that I'm not the only one without a tie in the room. But I hope that I will not look as unprepared uh, as I look underdressed. Um, I would like to start by a clarification because uh, it has been said that uh, uh, often trade unions are seen as conservative in that debate. Uh, I tend to disagree with that statement, even though, let's be frank, we have sometimes a difficult conversation uh, within our constituency because some of our colleagues, some of the workers we, we represent are at the front line of decarbonization. For some of them, uh, they, are, uh, they work in sectors or in regions where the benefits of the low carbon economy will be more difficult to secure. But despite uh, those difficulties, we, we have been um, for, for many years um, uh, arguing for an aggressive decarbonization backed, supported by a strong um, social agenda. Uh, we often say that uh, there are no jobs on that planet. Uh, everything that the trade unions have been fighting for for decades and centuries will not be possible if we do not uh, control climate change, if we do not decarbonize at a rapid pace um, our economies at a global scale. Uh, just as a matter of, of clarification. Uh, I think that if we start the debate on climate change by only focusing on jobs and competitiveness, it's absolutely misleading. I think that it shows that we completely misunderstand what is at stake. Um, I will go to London tomorrow to, um, uh, to participate to a, a meeting with workers from um, British utilities. 
And uh, in preparing my slides, I've been invited to make a state of play of climate policies. I make a presentation about the Paris Agreement. And I also prepared some slides about showing temperature trends and uh, emissions trends. And it's, it's basically scary. Uh, I'm not speaking here as a, as a trade union representative, but as a basic citizen, as the father of two young kids, I'm really scared when I, can, when I see the, uh, the, the, the temperature trends uh, or an ability to reduce our emissions. Look at the emissions from the G20 countries. They, they have uh, increased last year. It's, it's absolutely scary. If, you do, if we don't do, uh, if we do not manage to accelerate dramatically the decarbonization, what will be at stake very soon will be our ability to keep our planet uh, habitable. Um, now, having said that, the two um, sentence, the second sentence which uh, captures what trade unions uh, demand in this debate is just transition. Uh, we, we clearly say that um, we have to decarbonize as quickly as possible, but there are different, different ways uh, to, uh, to achieve that decarbonization. And when I read the, the title of the slide, uh, Social Impact of Decarbonization, that social impact will depend on what, on how we will design, frame, and implement the climate and energy policies. In other words, uh, the social impact will depend on what we make of climate policies, and in this case, of EU climate policies. Uh, there is nothing automatic, ne neither on the, on the positive side nor on the negative side. If you look at the, the forecasts uh, in terms of job creation, um, many studies from the, uh, from the ILO, from the European Commission, etc., foresee that decarbonization will, be, will have sorry, a, a positive impact on, on job creation. The ILO foresees that uh, the, the greening of the economy, not only decarbonization, but the transition to a sustainable economy, will create up to 24 million of jobs by 2030. And we, we, we can find similar uh, uh, forecasts uh, for, for the EU. So obviously there is here a potential that needs to be, to be tapped. Now, if we look at recent trends, figures and reports, uh, for instance, the IRENA um, annual uh, employment review, it shows that the trends uh, in the EU are not as uh, positive as we expected a few years ago. Uh, during the last uh, few years, from 2010 to 2015, uh, depending a little bit on the technologies we, we consider, but the trends have been either negative or flat in terms of job creation in the renewable industry in Europe because of the impact of austerity policies on uh, income, uh, households' incomes, uh, because of the impact of austerity policies on public budget, because of dramatic change and sudden change in the support schemes and policy framework to deploy renewable, but also because of a trade policy which has led to basically the destruction of some sectors in Europe because of the, the import of cheap products from elsewhere in Europe. So there is no automaticity in terms of job creation, and if we want to maximize the creation of jobs uh, in, in the EU while we, we are decarbonizing the, the economy, we have to ensure that we put in place the right uh, policy framework. Now, we also have, in terms of employment, to look at the negative side of the spectrum. If you make a mapping uh, of the consequences of decarbonization on the labor market, you will see, uh, indeed, some, some sectors that will win, like uh, the construction sector, the, um, uh, the renewable sectors, etc. But you also have the other side of the spectrum, the energy intensive industries, the extractive industries uh, that will be negatively, strongly negatively impacted. Concrete measures must be put in place to cushion the social impact in those sectors. And this is why we have called for a just transition fund in the context of the revision of the ETS, the emissions trading scheme. This is why we have been uh, arguing for similar um, devices in the context of the governance of the energy union and the national plans that member states will have to prepare in, in the coming years. We, we believe that in that context, a conversation must be opened or, or deepened uh, in the different member states to see how exactly uh, we, what, what, what concrete measures um, member states have to put in place to help those workers that will 
be negatively impacted by decarbonization, either to find uh, a new job or simply to have access to, to a decent life. And there, we have to mobilize a series of, I would say, classical policy instruments from um, the labor, the labor uh, market policy. We might talk about uh, retraining, uh, upskilling uh, programs for, for workers, but we, we will have also to mobilize, in certain contexts, uh, social protection systems. Um, what is also important to, to take into account is the quality of employment. We can see that in many, I would say, traditional sectors, um, you have sectors that are covered by uh, collective agreements, you have a high rate of uh, affiliation to trade unions, and therefore, as a result, uh, the working conditions, the employment conditions are significantly higher than in other sectors in society. Let me just give you one example. Uh, in, in Poland, uh, the um, EU, uh, the, sorry, the, the monthly gross um, salary in, uh, into in the coal mining industry is uh, up to 40% uh, above um, the, the, the salary in other manufacturing, uh, in manufacturing sectors in Poland. So if you want to have a decent and open conversation about decarbonization with those workers, you of course have to ensure that the, the jobs they might be able to find in other sectors will be equivalent in terms of salary, in terms of uh, employment condition. Otherwise, it's quite complicated for them to accept, uh, to jump uh, in, the, in the black hole, I would say, from, from what they have to what they, they could have it's, if it's not seen as, as positively. Um, now, two other uh, points uh, to, to finish. Uh, energy poverty uh, is, of course, a major concern for uh, trade unions. Uh, we, we know that nowadays uh, up to uh, around 11% uh, of uh, EU households are in a situation of uh, energy poverty with um, big differences um, among member states. It goes up to uh, almost 40% in Bulgaria. So this must be taken into account. We have seen some progress in the clean energy package, but a lot has to be done. And this is also another topic to be, to be tackled in the, um, the, 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 the policy planning exercises that member states will have to fulfill in, in the coming years. And uh, regarding the... Um, distributional effects of uh, current uh, climate policies. Uh, I agree we lack um, systematic data, but we have been informed of a very interesting report published in 2017 in the Netherlands, uh, commissioned by um, the, the Dutch um, uh, trade unions and uh, the Milieu Defensie, which is a, a green uh, NGO. And that report is, is really interesting because it shows that um, the lower income uh, households pay up to 5% of their uh, available income to uh, cover costs which are induced by uh, climate policies. It's uh, more than three times uh, above what the richer uh, households pay. Uh, so it shows you how uh, regressive uh, certain climate policies uh, can, can be. But again, and to, to, to conclude my, my little introduction, there is nothing automatic, there is nothing natural uh, climate policies, socially speaking, will be what, will be what we will make of it. Thank you. Um, yes, uh, thank you, Dennis. Um, I think what, what your statements all showed is, as always in, uh, in economic and political questions, that there are trade-offs. And um, maybe to, to highlight one of the trade-offs that, uh, that Barbara started out as a, as a question, uh, she was saying, we essentially would need a new market design for, uh, for the electricity sector that at the one hand uh, makes sure that we have a um, social policy component being dealt with. At the same time, we need a lot of energy efficiency and this, uh, this policy design potentially uh, should be targeted to, uh, to the uh, particular environment in a certain country while at the same time we have European rules for, for electricity markets. So there's, a, there's a, probably a very... Uh, fine uh, line to, uh, to work to, uh, to get to, uh, to such a market design and currently in the European Union we are discussing a new electricity market design and I would be very interested to hear your thoughts whether you think that it's taking uh, this approach into account or whether you're thinking that that's more of the, uh, more of the old system that Emmanuel described um, uh, that enshrines a system that is, uh, that is relatively centralized. 
another trade-off that um, that I found quite interesting from from what uh, what Dennis was saying is that uh, in decarbonization we will have effects both on the side of, of employment with the uh, with the brown jobs potentially losing out and at the same time we will have uh, effects on the side of consumption with uh, environmental cost uh, potentially increasing stronger for, for poorer parts of the population. Now if you think about compensating measures like for example for uh, for brown companies in terms of free allowances or in uh, in terms of uh, carbon leakage pro uh, prevention tools they typically increase the cost for poor households additionally so there is some trade off between the uh, between the two sides of society and that's something we uh, we might want to uh, to look deeper into and um, and finally on a on a statement of um, emmanuel um, he, he was saying that um, uh, distributed solutions might offer quite some some interesting perspective uh, going forward, um, but but I was wondering to some degree whether they are really solving the issue of distributional consequences. Because if I am thinking about distributed solutions, I'm thinking about somebody who owns his house, who is able to put uh, a smart installation there, uh, who has sufficiently high electricity consumption. So does that really solve the uh, the problem of the uh, of the poor person that has to deal with significantly higher electricity uh, cost? Um, I, I would leave one round on the panel with, uh, with these three questions and then I'll give it to you. Maybe two areas where I can uh, answer your uh, thoughts or questions. Uh, one is uh, gas consumption. Uh, as I told you, in Hungary, gas consumption is pretty high, as high as in, in the real gas-producing, uh, gas-extracting uh, countries, so it's unusually high. However, uh, gas consumption in Hungary seems to go down. And if it goes down, the infrastructure still needs its maintenance, but, but if I need to maintain the infra infrastructure when it's not used, it's, it's uh, a huge cost. So the question is, who bears the cost? What happens in those peripheral parts, in the margins of the country, where the gas infrastructure is hardly used at all? Shall I still maintain it? Or shall I uh, put incentives so that they would shift from the use of gas to other forms of energy sources in a decentralized manner? So that's an issue for many countries like Hungary to consider. Uh, to replace or maybe to get rid of those parts of the infrastructure in the field of gas which are not needed at all. The other issue is the regulation of prices. So, as I said, the, there are two components, the price and how much energy is used. In the previous eight years, we were in a good situation because uh, the global energy prices went down. However, now they are going up 20, 25%, especially gas. Uh, so if they go up, then it's not easy to regulate prices for those who uh, are uh, energy poverty stricken. So uh, what can we do with it? with this issue. So how can we help those who are uh, aggravated the most to consume less? Can we have different packages? Can we have basic packages of uh, um, services, whatever services? So basic packages for which we uh, ask for an affordable price. And anything which is more, which is a multi-component package, if you have solar, if you have an electric car, and if you need a plug-in system within your garage, then it might be a higher price that is offered by those who uh, provide the services. So maybe we can think of uh, this uh, double solution and still help those who, are, who, who need help and, and also uh, provide more uh, professional and multi-component uh, services for profit, which, which is also good for companies, because in the long run, um, we need to preserve the profitability of all the energy uh, value chain within each country. So this is, I think, a question that we 
everybody has to, um, each country has to investigate because there is double pressure on energy prices for, ha for households. And uh, the first pressure I already mentioned, the global energy price increase, and the second pressure is the higher and higher maintenance cost of the infrastructure. So under this uh, pressure, double pressure, we have to reevaluate how we approach energy poverty. And that's how we can urge people to uh, take part in the regulation of the energy market. And this is a multiplayer environment that can, maybe it could be a good approach to solve energy poverty. Um, <coughs> two, two comments. Um, first on the creation of employment. Um, for every megawatt hour of uh, renewable energy, Produced and uh, and I'm not talking only about utility scale. Uh, it's it's also on the, the roof of a house or the roof of a of a factory. Um, you're creating as many jobs uh, as uh, if uh, in in all the other um, energy sectors uh, combined. Right. So and the proof of of this is that Germany, uh, which has managed to power its economy to the tune of 36% in the first half of 2018. So 36% of the energy consumed uh, in Germany, or the electricity consumed in Germany was renewable this, this year so far. Um, in Germany, there, is, um, there are as many people working in renewable as in all the other energy sectors combined. So it, it's happening, it's, it's possible. Um, now, uh, uh, to Denis' point, we have to make sure that we manage carefully the transition and the upskilling of people uh, who uh, were working in the old centralized import-focused uh, 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 energy system and go to this uh, uh, and, and work in this new uh, decentralized, decarbonized, and prosumer uh, uh, world of, of, of energy. Um, I'm not so worried about the quality of jobs because we're talking about local jobs with, with, with added value. There is space for, for, for to, to, to create value. Uh, but definitely we need to, to, to secure that transition. And as, as, a, as a technology supplier, we, we, this is what, what we do. We are training constantly people uh, uh, to those new um, businesses of uh, uh, sizing or installing a, a, solar, a solar system. We train, I think, something like 10,000 people uh, last year in, in, in France. So first point, um, uh, on, the, on the job market, it's uh, as long as, as we are careful and in, 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 in we manage the transition, it's, it's possible and it's positive. Um, to your questions on, on, on the affordability, um, look, um, we are, because it's probably the most advanced market today, we, are, we, are, we have a lot of experience in Australia. And today what's happening, what we see uh, in Australia, pe people become prosumers uh, when they see their um, economic income uh, diminish. Uh, so what the typical case of an Australian household is, is a household who is going to retire, so they know that their income is going to, um, to decrease. Uh, their energy bill is extremely high and they say, well, maybe I should switch to solar. Uh, um, and today there are solutions because it's relatively easy to finance uh, or to subsidize uh, a solar installation. They don't need to put the money up front to put the capex up front, so it's happening. So we could perfectly envision something similar in, in, in Europe where either through distribution mechanisms uh, led by uh, regions or, or, or national governments or at European level, um, or uh, through financing models, because many uh, institutions in the financial world today are ready to finance those, uh, those assets because they know it's good for the economy and it's good uh, uh, for the decarbonization of, uh, of, of the economy. So there are solutions to make sure that not only the, 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 the higher income uh, households are, are, are the ones benefiting from that uh, energy transition and decarbonization. decarbonization. I'm um, not sure I will uh, answer exactly your, your two questions, but uh, maybe two, uh, two uh, additional comments. Uh, one, of, uh, one on um, uh, the electricity market design uh, and energy poverty. Uh, we have been 
um, we, we have joined a, a platform called the uh, Right to Energy platform with a series of uh, NGOs, social NGOs, green NGOs, and, and other uh, stakeholders. And among the demands we have, um, we uh, would like to oppose the, the demand to completely phase out the regulated price. We don't say that um, uh, regulated price uh, should be or is uh, the silver bullet, but we know by experience from a series of actors working from uh, uh, people in poverty or at risk of poverty that in some contexts, in, in specific situation, regulated price is uh, the most quick, e efficient tool that public authorities have in their hands to uh, tackle uh, very uh, urgent uh, issues. Of course, we agree that the best option is to work to reduce um, the energy bill to, uh, to, uh, through energy savings and energy efficiency measures, but the, the timing we are talking about is not the same. Uh, we are talking about measures that take years to produce their effects, uh, whereas uh, sometimes you have to face with uh, uh, situation where people need an answer in the coming weeks or months and in that case we believe that uh, when it makes sense um, public authorities should be allowed to uh, use regulated price. Uh, we also oppose uh, disconnection um, because we believe that uh, disconnection immediately uh, leads uh, people in, in great uh, poverty and, and even worse in precariousness. Uh, it has been reminded that uh, energy consu uh, electricity consumption is uh, increasing. Uh, electricity and energy consumption is crucial to have a decent life, heating your home, um, uh, having access to transport, but also having access to society. If you do not have electricity, you are not able uh, anymore to consult your emails, you are not able anymore to pay your, your invoices from home, etc., etc. So access to energy is a, 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 cr a crucial requirement to have access to society as a whole. So that's why uh, in the context of the, the platform right to, to energy, we oppose uh, this connection and we, we, uh, we oppose also the, the phasing out of uh, regulated price. In terms of, of um, labor uh, transition, uh, it's, it's funny to see uh, in, in the debate on, on decarbonization how uh, suddenly uh, employment and workers uh, become important for a series of actors who in other debates, I would say, do not care uh, at all about, about workers. Uh, we can see uh, some uh, corporate lobbyists uh, who, can, uh, who defended uh, uh, decision to uh, close down overnight um, plants, uh, decisions which have uh, driven uh, 10,000 of, of workers in, uh, in uh, precariousness. Um, the you can see the same people now um, shouting and, and almost uh, uh, tearing because climate policy would um, have a negative impact on, on employment or could have in the future an impact on employment. Uh, we believe that um, this, is, this is a game that, that we, we, shouldn't, we shouldn't play. Uh, we can see also many uh, companies um, highly benefiting from uh, the current EU climate policy. It has been well documented that the windfall profit in the context of the ETS is real um, evidence-based, etc. unlike the so-called carbon leakage, which is something that doesn't exist if you make uh, an ex-post analysis. If you make uh, an ex-ante analysis, it's, it's obvious that uh, it will be extremely complicated for the EU to be fully decarbonized in three decades if other major economies do not do the same uh, at the same pace, obviously. So in that context, we have to carefully look at uh, TDIs and other possible measures available. But pretending that uh, climate policies have significantly uh, destroyed jobs in the, in the EU, we believe that, the, that this is not true. And the same, um, it's, it's funny to see some, some populists uh, in, in the EU or elsewhere in the world having, you know, macho King Kong attitudes, pretending that uh, they protect and defend workers because they defend coal. Whereas actually they defend most of the time uh, less than 1% of the labor market. In the US, you have 60,000 coal miners. So pretending that because you uh, uh, defend coal, 
in the US, you defend employment. It's the biggest, one of the biggest fake news, and there are, there are many uh, circulating for, for the moment. Um, and it's really important for us to be here today and to convey that message. Uh, you don't need to oppose employment and climate change to defend workers' rights. We believe that both have to go hand in hand. There is a space to build a, a socially fair, a socially just transition towards a low carbon economy. And this is really crucial nowadays. Um, yeah, thanks, Dennis. I think we've uh, um, you had some perfectly provocative statements on, uh, in terms of regulated prices in a room full of economists. Uh, so maybe we can, can open the, um, the uh, discussion here. One question in the back. Yeah, we had the Paris Agreement in 2015. Now we're three, three years later, and in Belgium we had the hottest summer ever. So in the meantime, the US withdrew from the Paris Agreement. And Mr. Trump says it's fake news, the climate change. So how many planets do we need to live the way we are living and the, the way we are consuming energy? As overshoot day this year was already mid-August. So my, and, and considering the anticipated population explosion in 2050 will be 8 billion, in 2100, 12 billion on this planet. So my, my provocative question, isn't it highly time to, to put together a global energy stakeholder platform to uh, put pressure on political uh, decision-making in order to speed up the process of decarbonization? Thank you. Uh, I have a question to Ms. Botosh and Mr. Lagarek. So you said about uh, decentralization, uh, but um, there is another trend, you know, the, there are efforts to decrease uh, energy produ electricity production by coal and uh, nuclear power plants, yes, and, uh, but that brings that more gas will be used to cover for that. And uh, actually, it also coincides with the rhetoric by Gazprom, which claims that Europe will be buying even more gas in the uh, future. So do you see such a threat that there will be even more centralization? Because gas is quite a centralized uh, sphere. And if so, then how to counteract to that threat? Thank you. Um, uh, Maybe just one, if, I, if I may, uh, one comment. Um, so I, I would like in, uh, to, to, to keep the discussion productive, to, to stick a bit to the, to the topic of, um, of social implications of, uh, of decarbonization. Um, um, so if you could react in, in, in that manner. So, so uh, again, um, if you think of the energy system as a centralized system uh, controlled by a few companies, uh, where the energy is produced in a central point and then distributed to people who would take it uh, without much choice of uh, how carbonized uh, the energy is, then gas is, is a transition fuel uh, after nuclear and coal. Uh, now, what we are saying is that this centralized system, depending on imports, uh, is, is, is not the system we want for the future because the prosumer system where you produce and consume your own energy you decide on how carbonated your energy is going to become, um, how local your energy is going to be uh, uh, in the future. This is, this is the future. And technologically speaking, and, and from a cost standpoint, it's possible. So we don't necessarily need to go through this transition towards gas. Um, that's true that a year ago, two years ago probably, that it was very difficult to imagine a future of energy without these transitions through gas. Uh, now. With, because the, the renewable technologies have, have decreased in price so, so fast and because there have been so, so many advances in, um, in, in, the, in the sector of renewables, now we can imagine a future where this is not happening, where we don't need to go through gas. Uh, and, and as long as we are ready to uh, have a market design which is not about centralized uh, uh, distribution systems. 
just an answer to the first question. The withdrawal of the USA from the Paris Agreement is something we are not happy about. However, it triggered a lot of uh, state-level initiatives. So just my bigger son, when he uh, went to school and he was telling his friends, my mom uh, uh, works on climate change and the Paris Agreement. Nobody had a clue what the Paris Agreement was about. But after Trump's withdrawal, everybody knew uh, what his, uh, his mom was dealing with. So this is something that every, that was in the mass media, it was in the barrage of media attention. Everybody talked about what global effort is needed to tackle climate change. And my colleagues currently are in Bangkok uh, discussing the Paris rule book uh, and the text that we can discuss in Katowice in Poland in December at COP24. So sometimes steps can trigger other steps that, that, as you said, that I even within the US, just look at the state of California, which they, they actually overreached their target already that they set for 2020. So something is happening there, and it's good that we talk about it. Uh, just answering the other question, I agree with my colleague that gas is something transitionary. If you look at Hungary's energy strategy, it, which dates back to 2011, it said coal, nuclear, and solar, or renewable. But now we say gas instead of coal. And everybody knows that this is a coal phase out period. And coal, for example, in Hungary, 10% of um, the greenhouse gas emission is produced by one sing single company that is run on lignite. And even they are in the barrage of uh, media attention because they have just announced that they are going towards uh, a transition. They, there are 2,000 people affected in that mining region. Of course, 500 of them will retire by the time uh, the transition happens because transition always ends in phase out. Another 500 people um, uh, might find jobs on their own, but there are still 1,000 people in a region like that which need to be dealt with. And when the government deals with uh, a power plant like that, which takes so such a big percentage of greenhouse gas emissions, then we always talk to trade unions. We always go to local people, what they think about it, and everybody says, we want to stay here. We want to live here. It doesn't matter how, what we are going to do, what jobs we are going to find, but we want to stay here. So we know that we need to provide jobs to them. We need to uh, enlarge the industrial park, maybe to um, attract new companies to that place so that they could be upgraded and trained for other jobs because they, they, they want to uh, spend the rest of their time in those villages. And we have to respect that. And we have to prepare that. I come from a very traditional mining region. My father, my grandfathers were miners. So I remember when I was a child, uh, I was the only child when I went to competitions who said, uh, good luck. We always said, uh, good luck to each other. Miners said good luck to each other be before they went down. Uh, and I also remember how this region collapsed at the end of uh, the 90s, how we had to uh, convert a city from the dirty dozen, you know, dirty dozen, the dirty most polluting cities in Hungary, into something that is now the most developing industrial city in Hungary. It took 15 years, so it's not happening overnight. 15 years, unemployment was 17% including my re relatives, now it's four. Because the biggest European companies are in that city. But it, it meant that the city uh, management had to prepare for that. The one window uh, economic development agency was set up. So if somebody's coming to that region, it takes only uh, one institution, one window to go through to get all the licenses to settle in that place. So. We need to prepare these regions for just transition. We need to talk to people, we need to understand their needs, and then we need to tailor the political steps so that we could help them in this transition period. So, 
our time is uh, uh, of this session is up, and uh, I would like to to leave you with uh, with one thought uh, from uh, from this panel, that is that. Um, we have heard that the uh, transition will have massive implications also on the, uh, on the social sphere, that there's a lot of different policies that can be implemented, so there is not a, a one single way. Uh, we will probably not uh, only have to discuss what is the right carbon price to get there, but there's a lot of questions on the side in terms of technology sectors to tackle and, uh, and which policies to implement. And so this space is, uh, uh, is not over yet, there will be uh, long discussions in the, uh, uh, in the coming uh, years on the economics of uh, socially just transition. Uh, thank you very much for assisting the session and I hand over to the next session and André.